Well, good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and thank you very much for coming, and welcome to Jericho, where the walls are not currently falling down, but in the event of an emergency evacuation, then that's the door there at the back, down the stairs, and out into the square. Um, it's not every day that we host the grandson of an individual who, despite being involved in apparently planning the murder of Leon Trotsky, was later personally denounced for deviationist revisionism by no less than Stalin. Neither is it every day that we host someone who regularly pops up on Interpol's list of most wanted felons. And he's also been sentenced in absentia to nine years in prison back in Russia. Now your, your, your information is old. It's 18 years now. 18 years. <laughs> He's a one-time red diaper baby who became the CEO of the hedge fund Hermitage Capital, once the largest foreign investment vehicle in Russia. And he spent the early 2000s as minority shareholder activist and avowed admirer of an inscrutable KGB case officer who'd unexpectedly risen to the Russian presidency in the wake of a severe economic crisis, promising to put an end to the corruption and the Boyer governance of the Yeltsin period. But I'm racing ahead of myself because he can tell his extraordinary story far better than I can. Bill Browder. Um, so uh, the um, obvious question that must pop into your mind when you hear all that and you hear my accent is how in the world did I end up um, with all this crazy stuff? And so I, I'm just going to very quickly, I, I'm, I think I'm going to speak for about 10 minutes or so. I'm going to try to compress this into 10 minutes so we can do some talking instead of lecturing. But um, uh, so, so it, it's, uh, so my grandfather um, was the general secretary of the American Communist Party, um, ran for president twice on the communist ticket. And um, I was born in 1964, and so when I was going through my teenage rebellion, I said, what's the best way of rebelling from a family of communists? And uh, I figured it out. You put on a suit and a red tie and become a capitalist. And, and, uh, and so I became a capitalist. And then I went to business school at Stanford, and I graduated Stanford in 1989, which was the um, year that the Berlin Wall came down. And as I was looking for my first job out of, out of school, um, uh, I had this epiphany, which is my grandfather was the biggest communist in America, and the Berlin Wall has just come down. I'm going to become the biggest capitalist in Eastern Europe. And so that's what I set out to do. And, um, uh, and I um, uh, first moved to London, and, um, and then eventually I moved to Moscow and set up an investment fund um, called the Hermitage Fund, which grew from nothing to becoming the largest investment fund in Russia. And um, in the process of, of um, investing, I discovered that um, uh, all of the companies that I own shares of, these big uh, Russian companies like Gazprom and Lukoil and Sparebank, were all being robbed blind by the oligarchs and management that owned these companies, or that ran these companies, which I was a shareholder of. And um, uh, for business reasons, um, I decided that um, I was going to try to stop the stealing because if I could, then the, I thought the value of the shares would rise. And I came up with this interesting strategy to stop the stealing, which was to do very detailed research into how these people went about stealing 
and then sharing that research with journalists from the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal and the Financial Times and the Economist, etc. And um, and amazingly, this this um, naming and shaming strategy that I came up with worked, and it worked for a very unusual reason, which was that at the time that I was going about doing this. Um, Vladimir Putin had just come to power. And Vladimir Putin had the same set of enemies that I did. The oligarchs were stealing power from him at the same time as they were stealing money from me. And there's this famous expression, um, your enemy's enemy is your friend. And so even though I've never met Vladimir Putin in my life or ever had a conversation with him, um, every time that I would do one of these naming and shaming campaigns, he would step in, he would fire people, he would change government policy, he would do all sorts of stuff. And as a result of that, um, my, the value of my portfolio dramatically rose. And um, I ended up at the peak of my career managing four and a half billion dollars in Russia, um, and, which is a lot of money for Russia. And um, uh, now, it would have been the perfect life of, of doing good and making money in the same job. There's very few jobs you can do both. Um, you can either make money, not do good, or do good and not make money, but I was doing both. Um, but I had one um, fundamental issue, which is that Vladimir Putin wasn't doing, he wasn't um, cleaning up these companies because he um, wanted to be a good guy. He was cleaning up these companies because he wanted to become the biggest oligarch. And um, there was a famous moment in October of 2003 um, when Vladimir Putin decided he was going to win his war with the oligarchs. And he did so by arresting the biggest and richest oligarch in Russia, Mikhail Hordakovsky, the owner of Yukos. And there's actually someone in our audience today who knows him very well. Um, and um, uh, he arrested, he, uh, Mikhail Hordakovsky was landing his private jet on an on a airstrip in Siberia. And as he was landing, a bunch of KGB or FSB vehicles surrounded the plane. They raided the plane. They arrested him. They took him back to Moscow. Um, and then they put him on trial. And they put him on trial for uh, tax evasion. And in Russia, um, in Russian courts, there's a 99.7% conviction rate in criminal cases. <laughs> And so there's no presumption of innocence. And so whenever anyone goes on trial, um, they put you in a cage because in all probability you're going to be convicted and therefore why go through the bother of having to lock you up afterwards. And so they put um, Mikhail Hordakovsky in a cage and they allowed a, the television cameras to come into the courtroom and to film the, the richest and most powerful man in, in Russia sitting in a cage. And... Um, and imagine that you were the 17th richest oligarch in Russia, and um, you're on your yacht parked off the Hotel du Cap in Antibes, and uh, you finish up in the bedroom with your mistress, you go out to the living room and you flick on CNN, and there you see a guy far richer, far smarter, far more powerful than you sitting in a cage. What's your natural reaction gonna be? Um, you don't wanna sit in a cage yourself. And so one by one by one, in 2004, the other oligarchs went to Putin and said, Vladimir, what do we have to do to make sure we don't sit in a cage? And he said, very simple, 50%. Not 50% for the uh, Russian government, not 50% for the presidential administration of Russia, but 50% for Vladimir Putin. 
And at that moment in time, uh, Vladimir Putin became the richest man in the world. And um, at that moment in time, all of my naming and shaming campaigns um, no longer were so helpful to him. <laughs> um, instead of naming and shaming his enemies, I was now naming and shaming uh, his um, own personal financial interests. And it didn't take them very long to figure out what to do with me. In November of 2005, as I was flying back to Russia, after having lived there for 10 years, I was stopped at the border, I was detained, I was put into the airport detention center, locked up for 15 hours, and then put on a plane back to London and declared a threat to national security not to be allowed to come back into Russia again. Now, that felt pretty um, extreme, although when I thought about it afterwards, I realized that it was hardly extreme at all compared to what they could do to me. And so I looked around at what they could do to me, and there, there was effectively two, two places of, of weakness. I had people on the ground, and I had a lot of money invested in the country. And so I evacuated my staff, and then we quickly and quietly sold every last share that we held in Russia. And I succeeded in getting everybody out, and I succeeded in getting all of our money out. And I thought, great, that's excellent. Phew, time to move on to other places. And so I started investing in other parts of the world. I set up a new investment fund. My clients were all happy because they got their money safely out of the country. And, um, and I started to forget about Russia. Um, it turned out that they hadn't forgotten about me. And uh, 18 months after I was expelled, my offices in Moscow, which, and I did keep an office in Moscow, and I had one secretary there. My offices in Moscow were raided by 25 police officers. The American law firm that I used was also raided by 25 police officers. They were there to, to seize the stamps, seals, and certificates to our empty investment holding companies, which at the, they didn't know they were empty. Um, so they seized all these documents. Um, the next thing we know, we no longer own our empty investment holding companies. They've been fraudulently re-registered um, using the documents seized by the police. At this point, I was terrified not of any financial consequences because our money was safe, but I was terrified of the legal consequences of, of this activity of the police. And so I went out and hired the smartest lawyer I knew in Russia, a young man named Sergei Magnitsky, who was 35 years old at the time, to help me investigate why they were doing this and to help me stop it. And so Sergei goes out and investigates, and he comes back after a number of months of investigation, and he said, I figured out the whole scam. And so he went through it. And the first part of their scam was to steal our money. But thankfully, our money was taken out of the country before they stole it, and so our money was safe. However, the second part of the scam, they did succeed in. And the second part of the scam was that when we were selling all of our securities in Russia, um, we declared a profit of a billion dollars, and we paid a capital gains tax bill to the Russian government of $230 million. And what Sergei had discovered was that the, this group of, of criminals and, and corrupt officials had gone to the Russian tax authorities with our stolen companies that they now controlled, and they said there was a mistake made in the previous year's tax filing. Um, these companies didn't earn a billion dollars. They actually earned zero, and they filed an amended tax return based on a bunch of fake documents. And they said, as a result of it earning zero, um, $230 million of taxes was paid by mistake. And we'd like that money back, please. 
It was a $230 million tax refund request filed on the 23rd of December 2007, two days before Christmas. It was the largest tax refund request in the history of Russia, and it was approved and paid out the next day. Now, I was under the impression that Putin was some type of of, um, uh, patriot, some type of nationalist. Maybe he was sort of dishonest, but he was sort of dishonest in service of his own nationalistic interests. And so I thought, there's no way that such a nationalist would would be accepting of this um, theft of $230 million from their own country. And so I thought, and, and Sergei thought, together we thought, that if we brought this to the attention of the right authorities at the highest level, then the good guys would get the bad guys, and that would be the end of the story. And so we wrote criminal complaints to every different branch of Russian law enforcement. We, um, uh, I went on the TV and radio and explained the whole scam. And then Sergei went to the Russian State Investigative Committee, which is their uh, version of the FBI, and gave sworn testimony against the um, people the the officials and the criminals involved in the scam. And then we sat back and we waited for the good guys to get the bad guys. Well, it turns out in Putin's Russia, there are no good guys. Um, Five weeks after um, Sergei testified, the same police officers he testified against came to his home on the 24th of November uh, 2008 and they arrested him. They put him in pretrial detention where he was then tortured to get him to withdraw his testimony. Uh, They put him in cells with 14 inmates and eight beds and left lights on 24 hours a day to impose sleep deprivation. Uh, They put him in cells with no heat and no window panes in December in Moscow, so he nearly froze to death. They put him in cells um, with um, no toilet, just a hole in the floor where the sewage would bubble up. They moved him from cell to cell to cell in the middle of the night. And the purpose of all this was to get him to withdraw his testimony against the corrupt police officers, and they wanted to get him to sign a false confession to say that he stole the $230 million, and he did so on my instruction. And they figured, here's a guy who goes to a Western law firm, an American law firm, wears a suit to the office, buys his Starbucks in the morning. He's such a softy that, that he'll buckle in a week. What they didn't anticipate is that he might have looked soft, but he had an integrity of steel, And for him, the idea of perjuring himself and bearing false witness was more horrifying than any of the physical pain they were subjecting him to. And he absolutely refused to sign their false confession. And so after months and months of escalating torture, um, his health started to break down. He ended up losing 20 kilos. He got terrible pains in his stomach. And he was diagnosed as having pancreatitis and gallstones and needing an operation which was scheduled for the 1st of August, 2009. About a week before his operation, the same people who had been pressuring him came to his cell, put the false confession in front of him, and said, sign this false confession now. And he again refused. And in retaliation, they abruptly took him out of the prison that had a hospital and put him in a prison called Butyrka, which is a maximum security prison considered to be one of the most horrible prisons in Russia. And most significantly for Sergei at the time, there were no medical facilities there. And at Butyrka, his health completely broke down and went into a downward spiral. And um, 
Sergey and, and his lawyers desperately applied for medical attention to every different branch of the criminal justice system. And every different branch of the criminal justice system um, either ignored or rejected in writing the requests for medical attention. And finally, on the night of November 16, 2009, uh, Sergei Magnitsky's body could no longer tolerate this uh, untreated medical condition, and he went into critical condition. On that night, the Butyrka authorities um, put him in an ambulance and sent him to a different prison that had a medical wing. When he arrived at this different prison, uh, instead of putting him in the emergency room, they put him in an isolation cell, they chained him to a bed, and eight riot guards with rubber batons beat Sergei Magnitsky to death. That was November 16th, 2009, eight and a half years ago. Uh, Sergei Magnitsky was 37 years old. He left a wife and two children. I got the news of his murder on the morning of the 17th of November at 7.25 a.m. here in London. And it was by far the most horrifying, terrible, traumatic, life-changing news I could have ever gotten. Sergei Magnitsky was killed um, because he was my lawyer. If he hadn't been my lawyer, he would still be alive. And when I was finally able to get over the um, hysteria of that moment enough to think clearly, it became obvious to me that I had no choice but to put aside everything else that I was doing in my life and go after the people who killed him and make sure they face justice. And so for the last eight and a half years, I've given up my life as a businessman, and I focused entirely on going after the people who killed Sergei to get justice. And at first, we tried to get justice inside of Russia. And uh, it was not inconceivable in my mind that we could have, because this was an extremely high-profile murder. It was in every newspaper in the world over and over and over again. But most significantly, when Sergei was in prison, every day that he was in prison, he wrote a complaint, and sometimes twice a day, about how they were abusing him in prison. <coughs> he wrote 450 complaints during his 358 days in detention, documenting who was doing what to him, where, how, when, and why. And although um, they never acted on any of these complaints, um, he was able to file them, and we were able to get copies of them. And because of these copies, um, this was like a, a scream from the grave. And these copies um, created the most granular, well-documented account of human rights abuse that's come out of Russia in the last 35 years. And because of that, we've, we were certain that, that somebody would have to go to jail for this because it was just so horrifying and so detailed of how he was tortured and abused. But that didn't happen. Uh, the regime circled the wagons. Um, Putin personally got involved, and they exonerated, he personally exonerated every single person that played a role in Sergei Magnitsky's false arrest, torture, and murder. And to add insult to injury, they gave special promotions and state honors to some of the people who were most complicit. And so it became obvious to me that there was no chance of getting justice inside of Russia. And so I said, let's get justice outside of Russia. So how do you do that? Well, there are no real tools, or there, up until now, there, there were not um, real tools for fighting impunity and, and, uh, 
in this type of crime in the Western world. The International Criminal Court only works if someone has murdered 100,000. It doesn't work for one. And this concept of universal jurisdiction, which exists in some law books, um, doesn't actually work in practice. And so if at the time, when I started fighting outside for justice, the best thing you could do is go to the State Department or the Foreign Office, and if they thought your case was really compelling, they would issue a statement saying, we're deeply disappointed with Russia um, uh, because of the mysterious death of Sergei Magnitsky. And that's what was totally unsatisfying to me. And so I came up with this idea, which is um, there may not be jurisdiction for torture and murder here of a Russian uh, murder that took place in Russia, but all these people who killed Sergei Magnitsky did it for money. They did it for $230 million. And they don't, they don't keep that money in Russia because it's too scary for them that it could be stolen there. They keep that money here and in New York and Geneva. They're, they, send, they, go, they travel. You see them everywhere. They send their kids to boarding school here in Switzerland. They send their girlfriends on shopping trips to Milan. They send their wives to Miami. And that we can do something about. And so I came up with this idea of freezing the assets and banning the visas of the people who killed Magnitsky. And I took this idea first to Washington, and I met with um, a Democratic senator from Maryland named Benjamin Cardin and a Republican from Arizona, John McCain, and I told them the story I've just shared with you. And I said, can we ban their visas and freeze their assets? And these two senators said, yes, we can. And they came up with something in October of 2010 called the Magnitsky Act, which at, in 2010 just applied to Sergei Magnitsky. But the moment they, they came up with it, a bunch of people started calling from Russia saying, um, this is it. You found the Achilles heel of the Putin regime. Can you sanction the people who killed my father, the people who killed my sister, my brother, my uncle? And after about a dozen of these calls, these senators realized there was something much bigger than just the Magnitsky case. They had found a new technology. And so they um, added 65 words to the language, and um, uh, it went for a vote in November of 2012, and it passed the Senate 92 to 4, passed the House of Representatives 89%. And on December 14th, 2012, um, President Obama signed the Magnitsky Act into law. And there are now 49 people on the US Magnitsky list. And this has had a dramatic effect because when Russia um, invaded Ukraine, after spending two years of convincing every lawmaker that the best tool to go after um, Russian bad guys is visa sanctions and asset freezes. They immediately embraced that within weeks to sanction, to basically using the template from the Magnitsky Act to sanction uh, Russians for invading Ukraine. And as you'll all probably know, there was another important sanctions list that was, came up last week, which is the oligarch sanctions list, where they effectively did the same thing to the oligarchs. And Putin hates this. He hates this more than anything because this totally um, touches him in a way that nothing else touches him. Putin is one of the biggest oligarchs in Russia. He keeps his money offshore, um, and he kills um, to get that money. And the Magnitsky Act applies to him. And so he thinks that one day his fortune is going to be frozen and seized as well. And so if you, um, 
if you were paying attention last summer, you might have noticed that there was a Russian lawyer who showed up in Trump Tower um, uh, in June of 2016, right, right after Trump was nominated for the Republican nomination. Her name was Natalia Veselnitskaya. And she went to Trump Tower with only one request, which was, and she met with Donald Trump Jr. and Paul Manafort and Jared Kushner. And she said, if um, Donald Trump becomes president, um, could you repeal the Magnitsky Act? It was the, it was the one request. It's the, it's the main reason um, why Trump, why Putin wanted Trump to be elected. And the main reason why Russia has interfered in the US election. So we found our tool. Um, we know it affects Putin. And because we do, um, I've now spent the last few years rolling it out everywhere else. And um, I'm proud to say that we now have seven countries that have Magnitsky Acts. Um, Canada um, has a Magnitsky Act. The United Kingdom has a Magnitsky Act. Um, or I would call it Magnitsky Light at the moment, but we're, we're fixing that. <laughs> um, Estonia, Lithuania, and Latvia have Magnitsky Acts. The island of Gibraltar has a Magnitsky Act. And there are now roughly seven countries where the Magnitsky Act is going through the parliamentary process in Sweden, in Denmark, in Holland, in um, France, in Australia, in Ukraine, in South Africa. My goal is to have a Magnitsky Act become a global standard. And it doesn't just apply to Russians anymore. It now applies to bad guys everywhere. In December of last year, the US government prepared their first global Magnitsky list. And it was a true, ver a veritable rogues gallery of some of the worst people on the planet. And when you get put on this Magnitsky list, it's the end of your financial life. Basically, once you're on a US, federal sa uh, US sanctions list, that's it. No bank will do business with you anywhere in the world. No company will do business with you. It's the end of, end of your financial life. There was an expression that was coined in Colombia because they started using these sanctions on drug dealers in Colombia many years ago. They call it morta civil, which means civil death. And so we're never going to be able to bring Sergei Magnitsky back. And, and for that, I, um, I have to bear that burden for the rest of my life. Um, but I have been able to get a, um, uh, a movement started, a, a movement. It's not even a law anymore. It's a movement, a Magnitsky movement, um, which creates a impunity or, or challenges the impunity of bad guys everywhere in his name. And, and hopefully, the fact that, that there's now the end of impunity in the world means that some people won't kill other people and that Sergei Magnitsky will save lives through his sacrifice. And for that, I can feel a little bit of satisfaction and that his legacy has created something good in the world. Thank you very much.